You know, when I think of uh, growth or development in the life of the church, I, I tend to only think of what happens in the pulpit, how we, uh, we grow through learning or uh, through change as we see different things in God's word. But uh, there's also growth in uh, participation that's something that uh, needs to be acknowledged and recognized. And uh, I specifically am thinking about uh, with our worship team and how thankful that I am that uh, more and more people are becoming a part of that and uh, to see both uh, young and, and those of us who are older uh, joining together to lead our body uh, in worship of our Lord. So thank you to you that uh, do that every week. And uh, it's a it's a real joy for me to see that and just to see how far our worship has come uh, over the years. Um, I plan on, uh, by the way, speaking about that. I want to do a, a series on uh, gifts that uh, Paul specifically speaks to in 1 Corinthians chapters uh, 12 through 14. And that is a, a subject that is related to what we've been talking about uh, for a, a couple of weeks now. And that is uh, the subject of uh, family or doing family according to Jesus. And we're going to continue our study of that here uh, today, not specifically on that subject. Again, I want to take a time separate from that to just focus on that. But uh, we are going to continue our study of that subject, its application to our lives today. There is a handout. If you don't have that, please raise your hand. we got uh, several people up here. <clears throat> Doing Family According to Jesus, Part 2. That is the uh, the sermon title for today. And it seems to work best when uh, I give you the notes. I can't promise that will always be the case, but it seems to work best when I do that. Uh, give you the notes, and then uh, we... I read them and you follow along or I preach through them and you you follow along. And so uh, we're going to do that again here today. Uh, before we do that, though, though let's go ahead and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time, shall we? Father, thank you that you give us so many wonderful gifts. And if we're not careful, we can we can miss them. And one of those gifts is your people giving back to your people in worship or in service to your body. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for that that gift that blesses us every week as your people stand up here and either use their talents in singing or playing an instrument to lead us in our worship of you. Thank you also that every week we have a place where we can come to do that and to listen also to your word and to continue to learn and to grow and to change uh, so that we may prove to be a truly faithful disciples of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that uh, uh, this time, this time of teaching uh, would be correct according to your word and uh, that it would bring much glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would direct your eyes to the top of the uh, handout that you have there. And follow along with me now. Having finished our discussion on Jesus' radical view on family, and that was two weeks ago where uh, I established that particular view for you. Having established that, it is important that we now consider its application to our everyday lives. What does that look like? That's what we need to understand. What is doing family Family according to Jesus, not the world. What does that look like? And again, we started that discussion last week with regard to the world's values or expectations, conversations with outsiders, and fellowship with those not welcome to God. And here's uh, three things that we learn. Uh, you reject the family values or expectations established by the world. And we need to know what those are, of course, to reject them and and so that's what we did last week. We looked at several of those things that uh, are the expectations or value systems of this world in relation to the family and saw that uh, according to Jesus, those things are to be rejected. Number two, your conversations with outsiders, meaning non-Christians, are to be focused on family talk. When we're having conversations with them, that's to be our, our focus. That's to be our goal. And what do I mean by family talk? Well, 
talk about God, conversations about God or his word, the gospel, or our church family. I used to say to my wife that if you give me more than 15 minutes, probably even less than that, but you give me more than 15 minutes, I'll find a way to talk about God or his word or my church family. And it's really easy to do because if you spend more than uh, 15 minutes, you're usually on a particular subject, hence the reason that you're, uh, you're, you're talking for that length of time or more. And uh, at that point, you can now start to make connections to God's word or God himself. It's very easy just by saying things like this. God says, and then fill in the blank with whatever the topic is. And God has something to say about every single topic. Hence the reason God's word is sufficient for all life and godliness. When Chris and I were first married, I used to do this at the uh, the place that I worked when I was in college. And, and uh, those kinds of conversations would then lead to Bible studies with those individuals uh, and witnessing to those individuals. One such individual was uh, our dear brother, Scott Logan, who ended up getting saved as a result of that. And so uh, very easy to do, not as hard as you might think if you just think about it. God has something to say about everything. And so it's very easy then to make those kinds of connections. And when you do, what I found is, is that people are genuinely interested when you say things like, well, God says about whatever. They're usually uh, at the very least curious to understand more about that. Number three, you have no fellowship with anyone. You have no fellowship with anyone who does not welcome conversation about God and his gospel or refuses to act on what they have heard. And this includes biological family and friends. God, in other words, makes no exception for these two groups of people. And uh, for whatever reason, well, we know the reason, or at least I know the reason, sin, uh, we tend to make exceptions for uh, these groups of people. We say that, well, because they're my biological family, God wants me to spend Thanksgiving with them. Because they're my friends, my secular friends, God wants me to hang out with them. That's not true. And if we do speak that way, it's because of sin. It's because we're trying to justify something that God himself says is wrong. And it is indeed wrong. If you question that, all you have to do is read 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses, uh, I think it starts in verse 16 through 7-1. Do not have fellowship. No partnership. And that's what that word partnership means. We saw that. What partnership? Paul asked it as a question, a rhetorical question. What partnership does a believer have with an unbeliever? He then goes on to tell us what he means by that. What fellowship? And last week we made the distinction between fellowship and association. 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10 uh, tells us that we can associate, but there's a big difference between association and fellowship. And again, what are we commanded to do? No fellowship with anyone who does not welcome conversation about God and his gospel. That's the true unbeliever. That's the person not welcomed by God. They do not welcome it. You say, well, they do welcome it. Every time I go and I talk to my biological family, they welcome the conversation. How many conversations have you had with them? That's the question. What are they doing about it? Are they acting on what they have heard? Or are they making excuses? You see, that's the same as the person uh, who is not welcoming the conversation. If they're not acting on it, then they are still in rebellion to God, which means by definition, they are not welcome to God. Hence the reason that Jesus says when going to those places, the places where your biological family and friends live, the people you grew up with. I'm speaking, of course, from Matthew chapter 10. The villages that Jesus sent his disciples into were villages where they grew up. Villages where their family and friends lived. And Jesus says, if they do not welcome you, if the house you enter into is not worthy, 
It's not worthy. Why? Because they do not welcome your words. Then you kick the dust off your sandals. And I told you that that's an allusion back to Genesis 19 in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah. That you are to leave quickly from that place. And so again, what does it look like doing family according to Jesus? Which family according to Jesus is the church family? It means that you no longer have fellowship with anyone who is not welcome to God. And uh, if you question how anyone then gets saved, well, uh, why not ask that question as it related to Jesus and his disciples? They saw lots and lots of people come uh, to be saved. And it wasn't because they spent time with people not welcomed with God. It was because they took that time that would have been wasted and spent it on people that were welcome to God. People who were genuinely interested to hear more. People who were going to act on what they heard. That's who Jesus wants us spending our time with. Well, that brings us then to our new material for today with regard to your major life decisions, personal life, and attitude toward your brothers and sisters. And so here's the the first point as it relates to them, all again under this larger rubric or title of doing family according to Jesus. This is the application to what we learned about family. All major life decisions or in the lives of those in your care all major life decisions or in the lives under of those in your care, meaning your, your children or others, are under the oversight of your church family. Are under the oversight of your church family, most especially your ordained pastor or pastors. Text to consider then, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The point then being, Major life decisions. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. The very beginning of Paul's letter to this very high maintenance church. A church where uh, there was lots of conflict. That we read about in the latter chapters of this letter as well as the uh, second epistle. Anytime Paul has to write uh, multiple epistles to a church, which was the case with 1 Corinthians as well as, uh, or the Corinthians as well as the Thessalonians, uh, that right there should tell you uh, that this is a high maintenance church, a church with a lot of problems. Most especially or specifically problems as it relates to getting along with doing family the way that God wants family to be done within the church. And so as a part of that, uh, to begin his whole presentation to this particular church, as it relates to all the various issues that he will cover in the, uh, uh, the following or the proceeding chapters, he says this in verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That you all agree. Today, uh, that kind of thinking in the world uh, will get you tagged as someone who's part of a cult, right? Well, it's not like we all have to think the same. That's true if you're part of the world and you're going to hell. If you're following Jesus, yes, you do. We all need to, again, according to Jesus, and notice uh, Paul appealing by that name. Again, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning what I'm about to say comes from him. That you all agree again. What does he mean by that? No divisions. United in the same mind, in the same judgment. The scope of this same mind and same judgment is co-equal to that of the scripture itself, which is what we should expect. Which means what? 
if scripture is, as I've already said, sufficient for all life and godliness, if it has something to say about every single thing, then where our thinking is to be the same is in relation to every single thing. It's to be the same with scripture. We are to agree with what the Bible, what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say about those things. And in this way, then, there is no division. The same is told uh, to the Philippian church, uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1. By the way, what causes, going back to the issue of conflict or division uh, in the church, or in society as a whole. What causes conflict? Well, the number one reason that individuals, people have conflict is because they are not of the same mind. It's because they are not of the same judgment. Is that not true? And so this is the way that we have peace in the body of Christ. This is how we get along in the church family. Because we all have the same mind which is the mind of Christ. We all live not according to our own wills, but the one that we have all subjected ourselves to, to the will of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so here now Paul's saying, look, live... This is very similar to Ephesians chapter 4. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. uh, Worthy of your calling through the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Notice that. This is what it looks like to walk or to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. One spirit, one mind. Why? Because through that we can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. I've said from this uh, pulpit uh, on different occasions that it would be nice to at some point uh, to be uh, able to move on to uh, what I call funner stuff, right? We can talk about uh, some other things, uh, but we can't do that until we get on the same page and it seems like there's always someone who's not on the same page with the rest of us. And so because of that, it behooves me to stand up in the pulpit and to correct things that we've talked about many times before. And that's really the point that Paul is making here. When we are not of one mind, when we are not of one spirit, we cannot strive side by side. We cannot make progress for the gospel. Think about it from military terms. What makes a a particular fighting group effective is that they work together. They have one common goal. And they each carry out their particular orders in relation to that. They are of one mind. They are of one spirit. And so even our ability to reach others with the gospel requires a united front. Isn't this what we tell parents? Parents, if you're going to be effective with your children, you need to be a united front. You need to be of one mind and one judgment. Why would we expect it to be any different in the church? Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, notice they're continuing on. Again, he brings it up. Complete my joy, uh, Paul says here. Uh, Complete my joy. Make me happy. How? By being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord, and of, again, one mind. How important do you think this issue is, that he brings it up three times? (laughs) In a very small space there of conversation. Three times he brings up this issue. And so again, plugging that back into our point here, all major life decisions are in the lives of those in your care. We all need to be the same on things, in our judgments, in our thinking. Some practical examples 
Some practical examples. Uh, discipleship or discipline of your kids. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 6 is one such text that uh, uh, speaks about this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What I want you to notice there is something that you've probably not noticed before. And that is the fact that Paul, their ordained pastor, is telling them what to do with their kids. I remember early on in my ministry, uh, this being pointed out to me. How Paul, as the ordained pastor, is acting with jurisdiction over the parents in relation to their children. You say, how so? Because he's the one telling them what to do with their children. In other words... Again, he had jurisdiction over the parents in respect to how they raised their children. And based on the scope of these two terms that he uses here, discipline and instruction of the Lord, this would include jurisdiction over also their education and extracurricular commitments since these two terms, again, discipline and instruction, encompass the entirety of the child's spiritual and or character formation. And I think you would all agree with me without going into the nitty-gritty of those two words that, uh, that whatever these two words mean, it encompasses all things as it relates to that child's spiritual or character formation. Which would include then education or extracurricular commitments. Which means if parents don't know what the church understands to be God's prescription in respect to those two terms and their application to the different areas of their children's lives, education, etc., etc., they need to go to the church or its ordained pastors and ask. Your children are not your own to do whatever you want with, especially if they are covenant children. They're now a part of God's family, not your family. You've been charged with the task of raising them to the glory of God. But they belong to God. They are God's children. They belong to his family. Which means it's his jurisdiction. And those that he's placed over you to carry out that particular charge. As it relates to where to live. What to do for work. And by the way, the the reason I pick these two is because I think they're the most provocative uh, today, right? These are the things that uh, America, uh, you know, Americans, uh, the great, uh, the fourth greatest Western religion, as it's called, Americanism. It sometimes gets confused with Christianity. Uh, You don't tell me what to do with my kids and you don't tell me where to live or work, right? You don't do that. Pastor of the church don't tell me that kind of stuff, right? God does, actually. And he tells his pastors to tell you this kind of stuff. James chapter 4 is our text. Uh, James chapter 4. Verses 13 through 17. Interesting, um, before we get into the text, these verses used to be uh, in, you'd find them in doctrinal statements, or not doctrinal statements, but you would find it in the churches in old church constitution so there you have kind of the rules of operation for the church and this was a was a standard part of old church constitutions uh, when it came to uh, members leaving the church uh, 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 or, or requesting a transfer in other words they say hey we want to we're going to move here um, and we're requesting a transfer uh, to another church uh, these verses were commonly found in old church constitutions uh, because of what they teach on this uh, this particular subject. Here's what they teach. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Notice how James responds. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, what you ought to say is this. If the Lord wills, we will go and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Uh, What's the right thing that he knows to do but fails to do it? Acting as though he can make these kinds of decisions. 
Acting as though you can just make the decision. I'll move wherever I want. I'll do whatever I want with my life, my career. And I don't need to get uh, some kind of approval from the church to do so. According to James, it is evil and sin. His word's not mine. It is evil and sin. All such boasting is arrogance. It is evil arrogance. Wow. It is sin to make decisions as to where to live. That's the first part. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there. It is evil and sin to make decisions as to where to live or what to do for work. We will trade and make a profit, i.e. career choices, without first determining the will of God. That's verse 15 again, right? Uh, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we'll do those things. And according to Scripture, according to God's word, which we claim as Christians to follow, and we better follow if we want to remain Christians, according to God's word, the will of God is determined by the church family, or more specifically, her anointed pastors. And so uh, that is, uh, of course, the question uh, that comes out of this. Well, how do we determine what the will of God is? If the Lord wills. Well, how do I know if the Lord wills? Is it a feeling? Uh, Sometimes you'll hear people say uh, this. Well, I'll pray about it. Good luck with that. Right? That's usually just uh, an excuse, isn't it? What they're really saying to you is that I'm not going to listen to what you say. But I don't want you to think I'm being disobedient. I am having some kind of higher connection with God. Yet the scripture teaches that how we understand God's will is through the church. Or more specifically, those who have been given the spirit for discerning along with the affirmation of the church. This is what we see in Acts chapter 15, a text that is familiar to you. Acts chapter 15 And you'll see this over and over and over again. Here in this case, you have uh, the need for discernment as it relates to the issue of circumcision. Whether or not the Gentiles, those who were uh, once not the people of God, now becoming the people of God, if they needed to observe this particular old covenant clean law. And certain men, verse 1, came down. Uh, to Antioch, to Paul's church from Judea, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. This is uh, really the basis for Paul writing his uh, letter to the Galatian churches, uh, this very thing that that we read about here in verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 15, certain individuals coming down and teaching this, that uh, the Gentiles also need to observe uh, these old covenant clean laws. And so what are we told in verse 3? So being sent out on their way, or being sent on their way by the church. So there's a, a disagreement These individuals, all claiming to be Christians, all coming from uh, various churches. Uh, You have those in Antioch, those in Judea, Antioch being uh, Paul's church. Uh, These individuals are not of the same mind. They are not of the same judgment as it relates to this particular issue. And so who decides what to do? And the answer is the church. And what does the church decide to do in this case? Well, they send them to, at this time, their authority, which was uh, the authority of all the other existing churches, uh, the Church of Jerusalem, or the Church of the Apostles. They send them to the church in Jerusalem. And here's what we read in verse 6. The apostles and the elders in that church... You'll see in verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And then in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Elders and the apostles, or the apostles rather, and the elders. Apostles, who were they? Anointed men or ordained men. 
Who are the elders specifically that he's speaking of here? Well, also, uh, those among the elders who were anointed. Do we have an example of that? Yes, we do. Actually, the senior pastor of the church himself, the ordained pastor of the church, of the church James, the one who gives final judgment as it relates to this issue. We read that uh, in uh, verse 13. After they finish speaking, those among the apostles, Barnabas and Paul and Peter, those that speak in the verses just prior, after they finish speaking, James, the ordained pastor of the Jerusalem church, the ordained elder of the Jerusalem church, the half-brother of Jesus, replied and said, brothers, listen to me. And after here uh, quoting from the Old Testament, using that as his support uh, for his decision, he then says this in verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble them as it relates to this particular issue. And then we read in verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. They were in agreement, all the ordained men, with the whole church, the church affirming the decision or the discernment of her ordained pastors. Those are the men determining the will of God. Or maybe more specifically, the will of the Holy Spirit for the church or for her people. How do we know that? Well, that's part of the letter that is written then to these churches as it relates to this issue. Look at verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. I love that it doesn't just say, and to, or it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, but also, and to us. Because it's indicating to these churches the means by which they received the message from the Holy Spirit. The means by which they received or discerned the will of God. They're saying in no uncertain terms that it was given to the church. It was given specifically to us, to her ordained pastors. This will of God, this will of the Holy Spirit, as it relates to this issue. It was given to us. Hence the reason in Galatians chapter 2 that we find Paul going to the church as it relates to the gospel that he preached. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. That's a pretty major decision, wouldn't you think? Making sure that the gospel that you're preaching to others is correct. And so uh, where does Paul, the Apostle Paul, go to make sure that his decision on this issue was correct? He goes to the church. To the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, very uh, similar idea is picked up here as it relates to a prophecy that is taking place in the church. The principle, the, it's the same principle uh, here. Chapter 14, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Uh, the others there uh, finds its antecedent in the previous verse, verse 28. In the church, that word church is found there. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent. In church or in the church, it's articular there. In the church or the ecclesia and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three others speak or prophets rather and let the others weigh what is said. Others meaning in the church, those who are also ordained. Remember, prophets were ordained men. They no longer exist today, but at that time, who was to weigh in? The ordained. The ordained. Who again then is determining the will of God uh, in all matters is the church. Hence the reason in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, we are told to tell it to the church. The church or her ordained leaders possess the Holy Spirit for discerning God's will. This is what Jesus promised to give before his ascension back to heaven. John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, 
Verse 13, Jesus says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And here he is uh, speaking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, The only question that remains is, is he speaking about the spirit at Pentecost or the spirit that is given by Jesus before Pentecost? Or maybe a better way to put it is this. Is he speaking about the spirit that would be given by Jesus to the church leaders or to uh, specific ones among the church leadership, that which he gave before his ascension, or the spirit that was given after his ascension. That again being the spirit that was given at Pentecost. It's the difference between John 21 and Acts 2. Which of the two is it? Well, verse 16, I think, uh, makes it pretty clear uh, that it is uh, the former of the two. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, uh, a little while and you will see me. Same context. And here now we're giving the timestamp for the specific uh, spirit that he is speaking of. Notice again, a little while and you will see me no longer or you will no longer see me. What is he talking about there? His death. In a little while, you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. You'll see me after my resurrection. Isn't that when John 21 takes place? Remember, they're hiding out in fear. And we're told in John 21 that he comes to them at that time and says, peace be with you. And then he says these words, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit. And he says then to them, Whatever, whomever you forgive shall be forgiven. Whoever you do not forgive shall not be forgiven. And we understand that that's a part of uh, what Jesus promised would come also in Matthew chapter 16 when he says, whomever you bind or whatever you bind shall be bound, whatever you loose shall be loosed. And so again, here the timestamp for what he says there back in verse 13 about the spirit of truth coming that will guide you into all truth, meaning who will guide you into the will of God. That is not the spirit that is given to everybody, the Holy Spirit that's given to all believers to help them be obedient to God, but rather the spirit that is given to God's special leadership in the church, Isaiah 66, to the priests who will continue in God's covenant or among God's covenant community. To those people, as it was in the past, so it will be in the present and the future. Those men will receive the Spirit for the purpose of discerning truth or the will of God. He, again, will guide you into all truth. And so life decisions, where do we go? How do we determine those things? Well, we go to the church. Why wouldn't we go to the church? Again, the church is not our prison. The church is our protection. If I want to find the will of God, I need to find those men in the church that God has ordained and given them the spirit for the purpose of discerning truth, for the purpose of discerning his will. It's always been that way. Even going back to the Old Testament. Hence the reason that Moses says, I wish that all people have had the spirit as I do. So here's a question. Does this mean that ordained pastors are infallible or cannot be wrong or that we cannot disagree with them? Notice I put in there emphatically, no. It does not mean that we cannot be wrong or that you cannot disagree with us. But it does mean that if we, if you think that we are wrong, If we think they are wrong. Yeah, sorry. Uh, If we think that they are wrong, if you think that I am wrong, then you have an obligation to go to me and reason from the Scripture. And if from reasoning from the Scripture I don't listen, uh, then you are obligated to follow the protocol that is established for us in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, right? If your brother will not listen... We had an example of this here just recently. Someone came to me uh, over uh, the issue of uh, the excommunicated uh, being able to pray, or rather I was having a conversation with this individual, and uh, this, this came up as a result of our conversation. 
This person said to me, hey, well, what does that passage then mean as it relates to the excommunicated praying? Psalm 51. And because of that interaction, and uh, I thanked this particular individual uh, for pointing that out to me, what happened? Well, the next Sunday, I got up in this pulpit and told you that according to Psalm 51, the excommunicated can pray. And I'm so thankful for faithful people like that who will point things out to me. If we can't demonstrate our position to be correct to them or the church, then we must continue to submit to them, understanding this to be God's current will for our lives. Really important. I would underline that if I were you, if we can't demonstrate our position to be the correct one, even though it may be the correct one. Let me just throw that out there. Maybe your position is the correct one, but you can't demonstrate it from the scripture. Or maybe you followed the protocol of Matthew 18 and the church decides uh, that you're the one that's wrong. What do you do? Well, according to God, we continue to submit. Understanding this, whatever the position is today, to be the current will for God in our lives. And I, this is something that, uh, what we're going to talk about right now, put your, you know, like when I was a kid, they'd say, put your your thinking caps on, right? Uh, Make sure you listen, because I think some of you get tripped up on this. You say, well, but if it's not right, why would God want me to submit to it? That's what we're going to talk about. But let's first look at the establishment of authority and God wanting us to listen to all of those that he's established over us. Romans 13. And this, by the way, just isn't in the church. It's everywhere. In the home. In the world. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Similar words, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters, those who have been appointed by God with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey them as you would Christ. Think about that. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. What is the will of God then? Here we have that phrase, that you obey them. Those that God has established as masters or authority over you, that you obey them like you obey Christ. This is the will of God, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. First Peter, First Peter chapter two takes it even further. First Peter chapter two verse thirteen says this. Um, sorry, I'm in Second Peter. First um, Peter chapter two, verse thirteen says this: Be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. What does he mean by that? Well, exactly what Paul said when he called it the will of God. Because it's God's will, be subject to every human institution. And I'm so glad that Peter wrote it that way because what you have today is people trying to to split hairs on this issue, right? They say, well, uh, you're a human institution, not one that's been uh, appointed by God. Here, Peter says human institutions, meaning human institutions of authority, your boss at work. Be subject to every, notice, not some, those that you like. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In this context, what is the ignorance of foolish people? That they think that they can rebel against such authorities. It is people who are free. Not using your freedom, however, as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor everyone. Context again. Honor everyone in authority. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the perverse, literally, the unjust. And here's where uh, Peter adds this, this, this extra piece to the equation. 
It's not just to uh, those who are good, but also to those who are not so good. The perverse, the twisted, the unjust. Those two you shall submit to as to Christ. And notice in all of these examples that I've just given to you, whether you go back to Romans 13 or Ephesians 6 with Paul or here now with Peter, notice that in all of these examples, no exception is ever given based on foolishness, error, or even danger. And uh, we've had our share of that in this congregation. People going apostate and saying, well, I think that uh, the counsel that was given was uh, foolish or an error or whatever. Uh, and, And I can't do that. Peter can go as far as to say, you could even be in danger and you're still going to submit. You say, "Uh, well, I don't see that specifically in the text. Fair enough. Where am I getting that from? When Peter writes this epistle. When Peter writes this epistle is during the Neuronic persecution. And what do we read again that Peter says about uh, those in authority, including Nero? Honor the emperor. And so the excuse, I don't think that what they said was uh, very smart. I think they're in error. And what they're calling me or my family to do uh, will put us in danger. Now, would we intentionally ever do that? No. But if that's the case, that's still not an excuse. God never excuses disobedience to his established authorities for such things. And here is the the thinking cap piece now. Why? Because some of you miss this. You you say, well, how can I trust? You may not always be right. That's not the point. Because it is God's will at times. That his appointed leaders not always be correct. It's God's will. Did you hear that? It's God's will. That his appointed leaders not always be correct as a means of testing our trust and submission to him. God doesn't uh, give his leaders all the time, even those who are seeking him and seeking to be faithful. He doesn't always give them uh, the answers or all the answers. And, And I should put it the other way. He he never does that. He always never gives it all at once. And so there is a process of learning. And God does that on purpose. You say, how do you know that? We'll continue to read in 1 Peter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, you submit to those who are unjust. He's, He's now teeing off the end there of verse 18. But also to the unjust, you're going to submit. You're going to be subject to them. For this, this submission is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. There's the will of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, even though he didn't deserve it, and that's the point that he's making there, he didn't do anything wrong, and yet he's being reviled for it. And notice what he did in return. He did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted God. And we see this uh, even in uh, chapter 3. We're told that uh, even if we do suffer again, if we suffer, we are not to to be concerned. But even verse 14 of chapter 3, you should suffer for righteousness sake. You will be blessed. This is God's will at times. What then is God's will? Uh, Well, that leaders don't always get it right. And we suffer, quote unquote, because of that. And yet, what does God call us to do? To submit. A couple of examples to, I think, really drive this uh, home. Uh, Consider what I'm saying in respect to wives and children. 
Again, 1 Peter, look at verse 1. Uh, Peter here is just continuing now this thought or uh, this established principle into or drawing or making application now uh, to the specific realm of wives in relation to their husbands. Likewise, there's the connection. Peter's saying everything that I just taught you, this principle I've just established as it relates to submitting to human institutions, likewise, even those who are unjust, wives. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So what do we believe? Well, does a wife have the right to disobey her husband because she thinks that what he's teaching or what he's commanding or demanding is foolish or an error or even might put her in danger? Just based on that alone, does she have the right to not submit to him? And the answer again is no. No. If it's sin, well, that's a totally different subject. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But just because he's foolish or he's an heir doesn't give her the right to say, I will disobey what you say. How about children? Ephesians chapter 6, you know the text as it relates to uh, children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Uh, Doesn't say anything there about, again, uh, some form of exception. And that because there are no exceptions outside of your parents demanding that you do something that is sinful. You say, but mom and dad are not perfect. Mom and dad don't always get it right. Mom and dad can be in error about things. Well, if it's not sin, you need to obey. Is there any parent in this church right now uh, that, that, that teaches their children something other than that? I don't think so. You know what would happen if you did. Every time you told your child to do something, they would say, you know, I really don't think that that's probably the best way to go about it, so I'm not going to listen. And so taking that into consideration, that God's word does teach that wives or children do not have the right to disobey if they believe what they're being told to be foolish or an error or even dangerous, sin being the only exception, If God expects that kind of behavior in relation to wives and children, those under God's appointed authorities of the husband and the parents, why would we think it would be different? Or that different rules would apply to God's ordained pastors in the church who have been given the highest authority on earth, the authority to bind and loose. You see the hypocrisy? You say, oh, my wife, she needs to do what I say. My kids say, they need to do what I say. God's made me the authority. What about the pastor in the church? Well, I don't think think he's got the best ideas about stuff. Well, you you follow that uh, that logic through and you tell your kids they can do the same thing when they don't think that uh, you got the best ideas. Highest authority on earth. Why did I say that? Well, the binding and the loosing. When are we out of God's will then for obeying God's leaders? When are we out of God's will? Only when it can be proven through God's protocol that what we are being commanded to do is sin. And sorry that the 18 got chopped off there, but that's God's protocol, right? So the only time that uh, we can be disobedient to any of God's leaders, any, uh, the government, it doesn't matter who it is. Parents, husbands, is uh, when we can prove that what they're doing. So it doesn't give me the right to say, well, I think they're in sin, so I'm not going to do it. No, no, no. you got to follow still the protocol, right, to determine that. Now, before we leave that, let me just make mention of what I skipped over there. I saw what I skipped over, and I did it for a reason, just to keep with the flow of what we were talking about. Uh, going back up to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, uh, this is uh, the same uh, reason that Peter gives for wives. Uh, Peter says uh, that uh, God's going to give uh, some of you wives husbands who are not that, uh, who are not that wise. He's going to give you wives husbands who are not wise. 
And the reason, Peter says, is for the same reason that he's going to give you bosses and leaders in the world who are not wise. uh, To test you. And to really to force you to put your trust in him. To be like Sarah. Who called her husband Lord. And who trusted herself ultimately not to him, but to God in her submission to him. In her submission to him. By the way, that's a, a, if you'll turn over to that text, a little bit of a, a, we're on 55 minutes and uh, we're not going to get to to really get into the other points uh, here today. We're just going to be able to finish this this point. And so let me take a little time to dig into those verses. Go back to first Peter chapter three, because what we're told here is uh, it's worth something for you ladies to hear. Hopefully it will be an encouragement to you. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. So if even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over by a, uh, without a word by the conduct of their wives. What kind of conduct, how will they be won over Well, Peter's not looking for uh, ways that wives can manipulate their husbands. But rather that their husbands will, if they don't know Christ, they'll come to Christ. Or if they're not currently, as he says here, being obedient to Christ, that they will turn and become obedient. And if you're a Christian wife with a Christian husband, I would think that that's what you want more than anything else. Not to manipulate them, but to genuinely influence them toward godliness. So how do you do that? Well, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And here's in contrast to that then. Do not let your adorning be the external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Literally, that word adorn. How they beautified themselves. By submitting to their own husbands. Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good. And do not fear anything that is frightening. And what is he talking about here? What's the fear of their foolish decisions. And what that might mean for the family. Right? You don't fear it because you trust God. But going back up to those verses. How do you make the change wives? Well you don't do it through external beauty. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you are. Does that mean that you, you, you can't do those things? No, but, uh, but, but, but we live in a world that has uh, objectified women and women that objectify themselves. They think that, uh, or they rather choose, that the means by which that they will gain an advantage with others is by their external beauty. And that's called uh, objectifying a woman. It causes uh, men to then see them in that way as sex objects. And what that produces, women, when you do that, when you're concerned about that, when you let that be your focus as to why your husband loves you, when you do that, what you are encouraging is self-worship and self-exploitation. That's what it causes. That's the pattern of the world. And Peter says that's not the way to win your husband. That's why we don't use terminology that speaks that way about women. The way the world speaks about women. Using sexual connotations to speak about them. That's not what is to be attractive. That is not what you're to be focused on in adorning yourself. Rather, again, verse 4, the adorning is to be the hidden person of the heart. You are to be concerned about internal beauty. Being holy. Because what that does is causes not praise for you, but praise for God. That's what truly turns his heart to the right things. Ladies, you want a husband who who leads the home in wisdom? Who seeks for wisdom in the things that he does? Who seeks to follow after God? Then be concerned about that. Not the things that lead to self-praise and self-exploitation. By doing those things, you're just devaluing your value with him and with others. The point not to miss in all of this, going back to our main point as it relates to doing family. The point then not to miss, gospel accuracy and enforcement aside. We're not talking about whether they're getting the gospel right or not. Assuming that's already there and being enforced. 
Your assessment before God, all of us, our assessment before God will not be based on whether your pastor always got it right or made the wisest decisions, but whether or not you happily submitted to his decisions. Isn't the same true with respect to wives and their husbands or children and their parents? Parents, isn't that what you tell your children? Husbands, in relation to your wives, you say, you say, honey, it isn't about whether I'm the wisest guy in the block. It, it, it's, it's on judgment day, God's not going to be concerned with that. It's, did you submit to me, irrespective of that? And the same is in relation to children. And the same is in relation to the church. Hebrews chapter 13, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Make it a joy for them. Versus causing groaning. For this would be a disadvantage to you. Again, plugging that all back in to our main point. All major life decisions. One of the ways that you cause your pastors, your ordained pastor to groan. Is that you decide to make such decisions on your own without his counsel. And your decision is unbiblical. And I think you can see that, right? Because many of you have been guilty of such things. Well, that's not doing family the way that Jesus calls us to do family. But that our major life decisions be specifically in agreement or uh, in submission to the church's ordained pastors is confirmed by St. Ignatius. Some of you may remember, I sent the, uh, the quotes that I'm going to read for you now out at one time. Who was this man and why should we uh, listen to what he has to say? Uh, well, he was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. So he learned what he knew about Christianity. This man later becoming an ordained pastor or bishop, as they were called in those days. This man learned what he knew from the Apostle John. And, as uh, I sent out to you, which I found to be very interesting, he writes about having direct correspondence with Jesus' mother, Mary. He talks about being excited to meet her as she was coming to his church. Consider what he had to say to the early church. By the way, why this should matter to you, again, is because uh, any, any, any information that we receive that is as close to the epicenter itself, and this is in any particular field, is always the most uh, reliable data. Right? Because as things get passed down over time and copied, that's where you find corruption. And so anything or anybody that was uh, closest to the, and by epicenter in this case, we mean uh, to those that actually lived during the time of Jesus. Those are people that we can probably trust what they have to say. Because they're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. Oh, that's Ignatius. And here's what Ignatius had to say about what we're talking about here. Because again, I understand that that in and of itself is provocative. In our world today, we don't want to be told that our pastor has any kind of authority or some special ability, if he's ordained, to discern God's will. I don't really care what the world thinks. What I want to know is what Jesus taught his church and what the early church thought. That's what we should all think, right? What do they believe? Well, here's what uh, Ignatius believed, and here's what he taught the early church. Again, the direct disciple of John. What are the chances he's getting this wrong? Not very good, right? What are the chances that he's getting it right? Pretty high. Here's what he says, and I quote, It is fitting that you should run together in accordance with the will of the bishop. It is fitting that you should run together in accordance with the will of the bishop who by God's appointment rules over you. Again, you'll see there, I put in there so you understand what that means, the ordained pastor. He that refuses to assemble with the church for the judgment of the bishop has condemned himself. Wow. Let us be careful then not to set ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. It is becoming, therefore, that you also should be obedient to your bishop and contradict him in nothing. For it is a fearful thing to contradict any such person. For no one does by such conduct deceive him that is visible, but does not in reality seek to mock him who is invisible. And every such act has respect not to men, but God. Some indeed give one the title of bishop, but do all things without him. Such persons seem to me not to be possessed by a good conscience, seeing they are steadfastly gathered together according to the commandment 
under and in submission to the bishop. To those who indeed talk of the bishop, but do all things without him, he who is the true and first bishop and only high priest by nature will declare, speaking here of Jesus, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Such persons are dissemblers and hypocrites. Again, maybe this guy just made all this stuff up. What are the chances? Direct disciple of John. What are the chances that what this guy is telling us here is uh, absolutely what John taught him? And John, of course, getting that from Jesus. Summing up what the early church thought, Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, says this, and I quote, the first century Christian, the first century Christian or person perceived himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the life of the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with the church's family's norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual. This again, beloved, is doing family according to Jesus. The world and the uh, wicked people of the world, even though they may claim to be Christians, will buck against such constraints, but those who truly love and are following Christ welcome it. They know that such things are for their and their families protection. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though only getting through this first point, Father, I pray that it's had impact on all of us, that we receive it from you, your words, your truth, that we may do family the way that Jesus, our Savior, has taught us to do family, that we bring much glory to you. And because of that unity, because we are now the same mind and the same judgment, You would be pleased to use us striving together in that way, a united front to advance your kingdom in this world. Make it so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.